welcome to another episode of Private Equity Talks. I'm Talia Masiri, editor of Real Deals, and today I'm joined by Michael Preston, partner at Cleary Gottlieb. Um, so, Michael, thanks for joining me today. Um, thank you. So, for having me. Thank you. Um, so, today we'll be looking to discuss uh, sports and private equity. Um, clearly in the last couple of years, um, and, and maybe kind of five or so years now, there has been a, a significant uptick in uh, private equity investment in sports. Um, and I think obviously looking at um, the, the, the kind of recent win of the Lionesses in the UK, um, again, that's kind of spurred, spurred greater interest in, in sports. Um, and I think today's the point of today's conversation is to understand um, why this is, um, what, what types of structures private equity firms are, are looking to invest in when it comes to sport investment, um, and what was are some of the key deals as well that we're seeing in the market. Um, but I guess kind of a, a key point that stood out to me, Michael, was around um, in, in 2021, so private equity firms spent 50 billion on sports investments globally, mm. um, and then according to PitchBook. So kind of what, what would you say to maybe start us off, what led to the increase of interest in sport by private equity firms in, in the last few years? Yeah, look, Tony, I, I think it's a it's a very interesting question. I mean, the the, the sports market and the sports industry is is, is enormous. You know, globally, um, probably half a trillion dollars. All of these things are hard to measure, and it has been a big business and a big industry for a long time, growing pretty steadily year on year at about at about five or six percent. But I think probably in the past, um, sports was not necessarily seen as a as a very mainstream investment for private equity and other big financial investors, you know, the, the fortunes of sports teams wax and wane, uh, players are expensive, often it's coming down to the performance of a group of often very young athletes on, on, any, on any given day. Uh, and I think for a long time, sport was probably seen as more of a hobby, you know, something of a, a pastime, not, not serious financial investment, which serious financial investors do. I, I think what, what's probably changed to what's been most significant in the last few years is that there's been a much better understanding of the way in which partnerships between capital and sources of capital like, like private equity and sports can, can work together. And I think that that coincided with mass digitization um, and therefore the ability of people, of fans to, to engage with sport um, and to experience sport and to participate in sport and therefore on the other side of the coin, the ability to, to, to monetize that, to monetize the way people, people are engaging. I mean, when, when I was young um, uh, and growing up, if I wanted to engage with rugby or experience rugby, really that meant going to a match on Saturday and watching it uh, with, with one, of my, one of my parents and then maybe reading the newspaper on a Sunday and maybe watching the evening news. And that, that, that was really about, about it. That was sort of the, the ecosystem of the information I could get my hands on. I mean, now there's a piece of technology in, in my pocket which will enable me if I, if I wanted to, if I had the time, um, for 24 hours a day, to watch sport, read statistics about sport, buy merchandise from different teams around the world. I, I could watch 100 sports right now live uh, and then look at a lot of very interesting analytical data which have been published about all those sports. So I think the, the, yeah. the way in which, and this has happened of course in a lot in a lot of areas of our lives, but the way in which that digitalization has impacted the sports industry, I think has been quite revolutionary. I think that switched on private equity to the idea that, hold on, there's something we can, we can work with here and if there's a very interesting business model that, that we can we can get amongst um you know if you, if you sort of now look at um 
the way in which the sporting industry makes money, you know, the, the revenue streams tend to be pretty diverse and, and pretty stable. You know, you have match day receipts, you have merchandise, often updated season to season. So you, you buy uh, a new a new jersey or a new uniform every year. Um, but most importantly, I think you know you have partnerships with broadcasters, partnerships with sponsors. Mm-hmm. These are the the multi hundred million or billion multi billion dollar deals. Um, that really lie at the heart of it, where the cash is, is is coming from, and what's probably most interesting to, to private equity and investors. Yeah, um, yeah, completely, completely. And I guess kind of as you're saying, there's there's so many more touch points now around sports. It's not just going to a match. There are certain so many different areas. Um, and I guess that brings us on to the next point around the this COVID impact. Clearly, yeah. COVID brought a time whereby fans are weren't allowed to go to matches um and so yeah what how has covid impacted private equity investment in sport well certainly impacted sport yeah i I mean it was it was strange wasn't it we we suddenly went into a world where um any live performance or live entertainment uh was impossible and stepping back you think wow that that's really going to hit sport the hardest i mean how else do you do you do sport except out 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 in public um so that that was a big problem and 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 it is i think one of the reasons why there was a sharp uptick in 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 private equity um private equity interest Mm -hmm. sales and revenues plummeted the 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 sports into the global sports industry lost probably about 15 percent of of its value which is a very significant number yeah Wow. Uh, and a club, a club's hit financial difficulties. You know, the problem is most of your costs, if you're running a sports team, uh, the players. Uh, and surprisingly enough, players still want to be paid, even if they they can't generate revenue for for the, for the club in the same way. So you, your costs pretty much stay the same, um, but your revenues really start to tail off. And yeah. um, fortunately, I think some of the multi-year uh, broadcasting contracts meant that the revenues kept coming in. But but not not in all cases. I mean that that revenue started started to shrink as well. So yeah, I, I think you had a very difficult time for for the sports industry, and I think that accelerated the drive of, of private equity investment in sport. I, I think it is important to say though that is sometimes a, well at least I think it, it's easy sometimes to think about private equity as having operated like some kind of payday lender. You know they saw the distress of the industry and said, hey, like we've got a lot of money. Um, yeah. We, we can help you solve these, these problems. But I, I think that that would be to ignore the history of, of private equity investment in sport. It didn't start during COVID. If you look at some of the biggest movers, the likes of CBC, they were investing well before, well before COVID. So I think it is certainly fair to say that COVID accelerated private equity investment in sport, and particularly it brought sporting franchises to the table because they needed the yeah. money in, in a way they hadn't before. But it didn't create this investment class. I mean, that, that existed well before COVID. So it was an acceleration rather than um, the, sure. start of something, the start of something. Completely. But I think it, was, it is slightly unfair, I think, to sort of characterize it as a, a distressed investment. I think it's more than that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I guess it it brought up, brought up certain kind of distressed assets and certain opportunities, but in essence, they were necessarily distressed themselves, um, just going, riding the wave, I guess. Um, and then, obviously, as, as you mentioned, because you mentioned Formula One um, and, and with CVC, actually, um, CVC's investments, and obviously we've seen kind of certain deals with the La Liga um, and also uh, some of the rugby rugby team investments also. Um, right. But maybe from, from your perspective, Michael, kind of what is the most interesting private equity-backed sports deal? It's, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think it's quite 
difficult to go past CBC's Formula One investment. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is it really became a trailblazing deal that made the rest of the world sit up and, and take notice. Because I think up, up until that CBC investment, I, I don't think a lot of private equity firms had thought about sport uh, as being such a sort of mainstream viable investment. But the CBC, I, I mean, depending on um, which, which numbers you believe, it's a private investment fund, made anywhere between five to eight or nine times its money in, in, in Formula One. It was just a wonderful, wonderful deal. And I think that the, the, the model, I mean, the way they thought about that investment, I think that's the model that others are trying to, to replicate. Certainly CBC is replicating it across, as you as you rightly mentioned, the, the rugby mm -hmm. ecosystem in, in tennis, um, mm -hmm. in volleyball, in, in a whole raft of sports. They're really rolling out this playbook now and, and others are looking to uh, to use the same trick, I think is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what did, what did, what is that model you speak yeah. of? What did the model look like? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So the, the thing with private equity, you, you don't really want to be in the business of running a sports team, um, choosing players on, on the day, uh, you know, putting training regimes in place. That's that's really not where, where private equity wants to be for a bunch of reasons, um, <clears throat> including the publicity side, that's not sort of engagement with, with fans that you're looking for. And it's also not the expertise. I mean, that, that's not what private equity is, is, is good at. Um, what private equity is very, very good at is looking at uh, improving monetization opportunities, mm -hmm. you know, looking at a business model and saying, how can we make this business model work better? Uh, how do we take these consumer um, data analytics that we've been using for all these industries for decades and apply that to sport and think about revenue generation in a way that perhaps the, the sports franchise themselves mm. just haven't, haven't have never thought about. And, and the way that you do that successfully and the way that particularly CBC has done it very successfully is to separate out those that, that package of rights, those commercial rights or the rights that um, relate to broadcasting, you know, sponsorship, media deals, split that out from the running of the sport, from the sporting franchise or from the running of a sports team, have that in a separate company, preferably that you control so you get to call the shots. So even if the majority of the economics, you know, the majority of the money is going back to, to the sport, which is why it's an interesting investment for, for the sport, you control uh, or at least exert significant influence over how those revenues are, are generated. That That's really the playbook. And that then keeps mm -hmm. you out of the messy, difficult stuff that's hard to evolve with. You know, we, we looked at a, and I won't name the, <clears throat> the investor or the, or the sport, but, um, and we looked at a, at a, what would have been a very significant investment in a, in a sporting franchise. And, mm. you know, we were sort of sitting there looking at the, at the, at the books, at the articles, you know, the, the legal documents, which um, set out how the league, the sporting league run and how it was operated. I, I mean, some of it was a hundred years old. Uh, you know, it was incredibly, yeah turgid, incredibly difficult to work through. And the governance structure would be enormously problematic if you were stepping into it. You know, every mm -hmm. decision, certainly every important decision would need, would have needed the vote of two thirds of the clubs, the sporting clubs within the wider sporting franchise. So if I had any idea about how I wanted to change the direction of the marketing or the monetization, I would have to go into a room. There would be a representative of each one of the numerous teams around the table yeah. And I persuade two thirds of those people that, that this was a good idea. Uh, so you can see how that would be a very convoluted <laughs> process for, for making the big decisions that you want to be able to make snappily and, and, and yeah. 
So getting yourself away from that, that that's the real trick. And I think that's where the magic is in, in making these investments uh, successful. Sure, sure. So kind of having ownership, but not kind of the direct overruling ownership of the way in which the club is run. It's more of a subsidiary. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and then I, I guess, Michael, we've spoken about, um, we touched on the fans briefly. Mm. Uh, no sports team comes up is fans. Um, and as we know, sports fans can be very opinionated. Um, so keen to speak about public perception here when it comes to private equity investment in uh, sports teams. So where, where would you say, where can private equity investment in sports be challenging? Um, and kind of how, how does public perception impact um, the success of a deal or a deal going through even? So th this is a very interesting, a very interesting question. Um, and it, you, know, you, you might like your local restaurant, but you, you probably don't love it. And you, you probably don't love it to the point where you will protest in the streets if there's a new owner of, of, the, of your restaurant, right? Um, we, we don't get that passionate about, about too many things in our, in our day to day life. And sports are an exception. I mean, people are, yeah extremely passionate about the team that they follow. Um, and, and quite often for a number of sports, it, it's, um, it can be an entire community, an entire town. Uh, I'm originally from New Zealand. I mean, there's an entire country, which, which really does follow the fortunes of uh, this, uh, a particular sporting team. So it, it's quite unique in that sense that it, that it brings into play just a whole range of, of, of emotions. Um, and, and look, I, I, again, it's a deal I won't, I won't name, but I, I was involved in, in a, a there was a transaction a number of years ago um, at a, a law firm I, I was previously with. Um, and suffice it to say that this involved big business coming into a particular sports club. We, sure. we had to have triple security on, on each one of the doors um, because oh, wow. there was a, a threat or at least a perceived threat from one of the players, uh, the supporters groups that didn't want this investment to happen. So that got serious. I mean, there were there were, there were their actual threats. Uh, of, of, Very, yeah. Um, so yeah, look, you, you, you are potentially, when you are um, sort of coming into a, to a sports league, particularly though, if you're coming into a, to a sports club, I mean, that's where it gets a lot more difficult. Yeah. I think you do risk, um, uh, particularly if it's say a big, a, big money, something like a private equity fund or a bank, it's pretty anonymous. People don't um, sort of necessarily have a great perception of um, the way in which uh, some big lenders of private capital have operated in different in different industries uh, around the world. Um, if people might have a perception that, look, it's all about throwing um, as, as little money as possible, taking as much money in, out as possible, not really looking after the game, not looking after interest of the fan. Those are the sorts of concerns that, that I think you, know, you have to be wary of. And mm -hmm. just looking at the, the top tier of English, English football, at least English football in the, in the men's game, um, I think you can see that there are some uh, team owners who are worshipped by their fans. Um, the, the recent owner of the Chelsea Football Club, yeah. of, the, of the Manchester City Football Club, genuinely popular with, with the fan base. And I think that um, they, they almost have sort of movie star status or, uh, and more recently, there's an actual movie star, Ryan Reynolds, who owns a football club, yeah. very popular with the fans because I think there, people are saying, look, well, they're bringing um, money and resources to the table. They're not meddling in the affairs of the club. They're allowing the club to grow. They're allowing the club to hire, the, to hire or buy the best, the best talent. And they're allowing us to achieve success on the field. The mm -hmm. problem is where there's a perception that there is meddling um, and 
I make no comment on it, but rightly or wrongly, say the, the Manchester United Football Club, I mean, there's a problematic relationship between the owners and the fans. There's a perception that the money isn't coming in, or at least not in the way that it should be, and that there is interference with the running of the club. Whether that's right or wrong, it's probably much more linked to the, to the performance of the, of the recent performance of the team. It is a difficult situation to walk into. Now, I think yeah. we deal with that in two ways. One is, is I suppose, head on. You know, when, when Silver Lake made its investment in, in New Zealand rugby, um, yeah, that that um, there was a huge reaction. To that. I mean, that that attracted uh, an enormous amount of public interest and, and attention. I mean, everyone knew about this deal in, in, in New Zealand and everyone wanted to have a say in the deal. Um, and Silver Lake, I think, took that very much head on. I mean, they worked with the associations and the, and the groups that were uh, a part of the rugby ecosystem. They talked to fans, they talked to supporters, and they put out much more of a direct publicity campaign saying, look, here we are, but here's why we think this money is helpful and here's why it's going to do good things for the sport. You know, this money is going to trickle down, it's going to be involved in grassroots, the development of the women's game. These were a lot of the selling points that, that, that Silver Lake took to the public as well as right. New Zealand rugby. Yeah. So that is one way to do it. You just say, look, here I am, and he, here's what I'm going to do to, to, to make this, this club or this team successful. But the other way, though, and I think this is going back to the playbook we, we talked about, is look to avoid that, you know, to avoid being part of that level of discussion um, and, and just go into sort of the commercial rights, which people have less visibility of where I think it can be a little bit more anonymous in the way that you you participate in the game. Um, yeah. But look, I mean, we've, see, we've seen other examples, the, the Football Super League, uh, the ill-fated attempt to mm. create a, a UEFA rival. I mean, that that didn't, that didn't, uh, that wasn't popular. I mean, you had politicians, you had prime ministers and presidents. <laughs> You're commenting on this proposal. It was extraordinary. I mean, the, no, it was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention um, the fans. <laughs> not to mention the fans, right, right. And so, yeah, look, there I think is an example of how it can be very, very difficult. And I think the, the strategy has to be very carefully thought through to think, look, if we're going directly, if, we, if we're going to change the way, visibly change the way that this game works or this team works, um, we'll need to come with a PR campaign and be ready to manage that message. Or you know, we just try and avoid that altogether and we structure the investment in a way that just keeps us out of the attention of oh. public, the, the, the sports fans. Yeah. Interesting. So you can't be kind of floating in the middle where, where yeah. you've kind of got that public <laughs> attention, but you're not, you're refusing to say anything. Um, exactly, exactly. No comment doesn't work unless you're yeah. completely yeah. under the radar. Exactly. Um, really interesting. Okay. And then I guess um, to go off of what you're saying, if we're, if we're looking at the, the former example where a firm gets in a, um, a PR a PR team on board to help yeah. kind of put out that message. Yeah. Um, have you seen any, any examples of this? Have you got any examples you can share? Um, and and how have the public then responded to that? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think that I think that a good, I think that the Silver Lake, um, you know, the, the 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 rugby, the New Zealand rugby play, I think that is a good example of where, you know, you you're really investing in something which is part of the national psyche and so the way you manage the message has to be very very carefully done so I, I think that was a very good example of where um, you know, the investment really went hand in glove with um, a, a PR campaign that was designed to explain to people what, what was happening and how this was going to be beneficial that, that was I think was one of the more visible and very high profile mm -hmm. investments that, that, was, that was made. I think in other, I mean, it certainly happened in, in other sports as well. Um, 
Well, I think it's fair to say, I think there's been much more reception. If, if you sort of step away from some of the, the most mainstream sports, um, things like the investment in volleyball, you know, table tennis, I think there you have much less of an issue because you, 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 you know, investment is welcome wherever it's coming from, I think. And there, I think you had a very positive reception. So there the message was, was much easier to sell. And there the PR was more about um, let's talk about how we're going to make the sport very popular again. Not so much, don't worry, <laughs> we're mm -hmm. not going to improve the sport. It was, look, here's what we're going to do to make, to make things so much, so much better um, and to get more money into the sport. Um, so you, you, your PR message, I think, is very much calibrated to what the sport is that you're investing in um, and what, what it is you're, you're, you're trying to achieve. But yeah, look, I, I think the way that, the way that Silver Lake um, went about the New Zealand rugby play, which a lot of people at the outset said this is never going to work. This money will never be accepted. Um, but they, they, made, they made it work. And, and in the end, it was, it was a well-supported deal. I think that's a good example of how yeah. a carefully managed PR campaign can be very, very important. I mean, can't contrast that with, uh, with Super League. I mean, that, yeah. that didn't work so well. Um, and I think those are two really good illustrations of how... Uh, Completely. Know, <laughs> I, th I think the other, the other, I mean, the, the other, I guess, point if you still have something like Super League is I think you also have to think about where the opposition is going to is going to come from. You know, who, who are you trying to convince? Um, in some cases, again, if you sort of take a look at New Zealand rugby, um, people and fans, that, that was a big part of the equation, how they're going to react. With Super League, yes, the fans were obviously an extremely important part of that. But I think the dimensions that, that probably hadn't been thought about, politicians, that the way mm -hmm. that there'd be political interest in the deal, uh, but also clubs, you know, very powerful clubs who I think were concerned uh, about the direction that this new franchise was going to, was going to take you in. So they yeah. had, uh, you know, you had just so many different stakeholders to manage, mm -hmm. um, everything from rival clubs, clubs in the league, politicians to, to the public. I mean, that was a, that was a very complex, uh, I think, series of moving parts that had to be that had to be choreographed to make that work yeah yeah and clearly clearly not not in the right way and and, and <laughs> so it didn't work out um okay and then i guess kind of looking at the, the positive so um clearly we've established what types of parts let's call them of sports teams that, yeah. that private equity firms um tend to to look at and invest in um but how can they, how can private equity managers add value to sports teams? Mm. Um, again, I know it's very kind of a case-by-case -case basis, but kind of broadly, have you got any kind of uh, yeah. of that? No, sure thing. Well, I mean, I think broadly, look, there's no doubt that um, bringing an injection of cash to the table, I mean, that, that, is, that is part of it. Um, with, with a lot of, uh, say, sporting teams or franchises, um, they will be getting money in over, over a period of time into the future through media deals, rights deals, uh, other sorts of deals, you know, ticket sales. What, what I think private equity is often offering is the, is the way to bring in a big lump sum uh, mm -hmm. cash up front. So you're, you're, sort of, you're, you're getting your money now um, and, and effectively paying back to the, to the private equity fund over time. So private equity uh, has very considerable financial resources. And one thing is just an immediate cash injection, but it's certainly about more than more than just the money, more than throwing in the money up front. Um, I think probably the, the the really important thing that private equity is would be bringing to the table um, are the, the the ways in which you can think about um, improving the monetization of 
what you what you have. And sure. again, this is going back to some of the points we, we talked about, um, some of the deep uh, data analytics technologies that, that, that private equity is used to working with. Um, mm -hmm. Looking at revenue streams and thinking about how can I improve these, which is all good for the, for the clubs and the teams. I mean, what it's looking at doing is saying, um, you know, we are going to make you more profitable over, over yeah. multiple years. We're, we're going to improve the ways mm -hmm. in which you can, you can generate revenue. Um, and I think that that, you know, it, it's money that um, helps the team in their day-to-day their -day activities. It helps the money to filter down into the grassroots of the game to make sure that there are uh, players coming through the system from, from amateur and low-level clubs. Mm -hmm. um, improves revenue generation and, and I think leads to a lot of innovation. You know, one of the interesting things I think you've seen in sport over the last few years is uh, different ideas as to how you can make sport more appealing to a consuming public and, and particularly consuming public, which again, will watch clips over over, over video. So if you, if you look at cricket, the, the short form versions of the game um, have now become enormous. The Indian, uh, the, the IPL, especially, I mean, that that's huge. Um, that, that's multi-billion dollar business and, and in England now the, the, you know, the hundred. So the, the idea is you're, you're looking for shorter form, jazzy, loud, bright, exciting, action-packed. It's almost like watching a highlights reel, um, but that's the entire, that's the entire match. You know, rugby has rugby seven. So um, I, I think that, that one thing that, 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 that private equity is looking at doing is to looking at um, you're bringing in some of these ideas to more traditional sports, which haven't yet evolved in, in, in sure. action. Um, so I, I, yeah, to, to me, it's, it's, it's about ideas, um, innovation, but, but really I think at its core, improving cash flow, like just, just putting the clubs and the leagues in a, in a better financial position, mm -hmm. that by doing the stuff that private equity is very, very good at doing. Um, yeah. look, they won't make better, better teams by giving advice on play no. <laughs> that, that's, that's I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know the industry is trying to diversify in terms of its uh, backgrounds of, of partners, but not that far, no. Yeah, um, it's what you got at. Yeah. yeah, completely. I mean, I'm sure there are some self-proclaimed cricket experts in I, the industry. <laughs> no doubt. But, yeah. Um, okay. And then I guess um, that's really useful, Michael. Um, yeah, going on to a final point and circling yeah. back to what, what kind of inspired this interview um, was around the England women's uh, yeah. victory uh, earlier this year. Um, yeah. So what, what's your opinion on kind of Privacity's appetite for uh, women's sports um, at the moment? Yeah, I, look, I think um, certainly in the, in the past, I think that most of the investment um, from, from private equity in women's sport has been more indirect, you know, in the sense that, look, if you, you put a bunch of money into the governing body, some of that kind of trickles down, uh, but it's not, it's not really directly targeting investment in women's sport. So there's no doubt that there has been significant underinvestment in, in, in women's sport over the years. And the focus has really been on the leagues and the teams, which at the time were generating the most the most cash. I mean, that, that, that's, yeah. that's where most of the, uh, most of the attention has gone. Um, I think now though, what, what was so exciting about um, the, the Lionesses victory, but, but that's also building on, it, it's building on things that, that have, you know, they've already, they've already happened. I mean, the, 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 the last, the Women's uh, Football World Cup in uh, 2019, mm -hmm. 1.3 billion viewers. Um, now that that's that's about a third of the equivalent for, for, for the men's game for the men's okay. 
but that's 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 an enormous number. I mean, it yeah. maybe a third, but that's a vast number, and that that's mm -hmm. uh, that's a huge number of people um, that are yeah, potentially sources of, of revenue. I mean, yeah. if you can just reach out to these people. So, um, I think that the, the numbers of people following and participating in women's sport have just grown so much over the years that the the story, the investment story, is really becoming quite compelling. Um, and I mean, the Lioness's victory was just phenomenal. It could not have happened at, at a better time. Um, it happened at a time when already the, the, so the, the, the women's football had been looking at partnerships with private equity and actually rejected them um, on the basis they felt it would be undervaluing the, the potential for, for, for future growth. Uh, but now, I mean, off the back of that victory, you know, you sort of look at what, what immediately followed um the there's a, there's a friendly uh where the lionesses will play the, the world champions the americans in october at wembley uh 65,000 people sold out in hours uh you know chelsea arsenal season tickets were sold out com completely um off mm. the back of, of that victory and what what that's telling you i think is that the um the potential for growth is is just huge and so even yeah. So if you look at the absolute numbers of, of you know, revenue that's being generated by the, by, the, by women's sports, revenue generated by men's sports, look, there's still a big difference. There's no there's no question about that. I mean, just to put it in perspective, in, in 2021, uh, revenue, in the, just taking the United Kingdom, revenues associated with, with women's sport were about 350 million sterling. Um, yeah, for the Premier League alone, that the number is about five billion, and that, that's one sport. So the, the numbers are different if you look at them on the absolute terms. But I think where the focus will be now and increasing is, is on the growth potential. <clears throat> is that yeah. Men's sports are going to keep growing, but at a pretty sedate, steady rate, maybe four, five, 6% a year. It's women's sports where there's just enormous growth potential. So mm. it doesn't matter so much about what that absolute number is. It's about the ability of that number and the rate at which that, that number will grow. And I think the Linus's victory was just so fabulous and underscoring uh, just how much potential there is. You know, 17 million viewers on, on the BBC. Um, yeah, incredible. These are things that, that won't be ignored. Um, and so I think that, look, in, in recent years, and particularly in the last couple of years, um, while most of the investment that we're, we've seen has focused on um, the big football leagues, um, on, on, on rugby, and more on the men's side than the women's side, you, you've also seen, I think, some very interesting, interesting things happening on in, in, in women's sports. Mm -hmm. um, CBC was... Uh, made an investment in, in, in women's tennis was looking at um, doing something interesting involving combining um, under one body that the men's game and the women's game interestingly actually it was it was um, the, the women's tennis um, association they, they felt that that wouldn't be the best thing for the development of, of, of the women's game and there was the risk of so being absorbed into a into the larger infrastructure around around the men's game um, but mm. the investment went ahead um, Private equity has been looking at uh, investment in, in um, professional women's football and the top tier of women's football. Again, I mean, there's a review run by Rothschild. Um, there were investment proposals made. Again, it was the, the league that stepped back and said, we think that undervalues, Let, let's, let's see what happens down, down the line. Um, but I think in the next five years, you're going to see some very exciting and very interesting investment opportunities opening up. And I think there's every chance there'll be uh, significantly greater investment in women's sports over the, over the next few years. And, and it's things like this, it's things like the Lioness's victory, which really underscore uh, the, the potential. All, all the ingredients that um, mean that there's money to be made out of men's sports, they're, they're all there. Uh, on a different scale now, sure. 
but greater growth potential um, and and really exciting possibilities in, in the future. Completely, completely. And I guess that's what what private equity managers look for. They're looking for that next big growth opportunity. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And yeah. yeah, and as you say, kind of what what better time now? Kind of when there's some sort of um, just excitement around building around women's sports. Well, Michael, it's been great, really great speaking with you. Um, I think maybe to end the conversation and to give one last piece of advice for to our listeners, can I put you on the spot here and say, um, <laughs> what would you say your your top tip is for product managers, for GPs, considering um, a sports-related investment? It's a very good question. Um, I think it is, first of all, think, think carefully um, about what it is that we're trying to achieve uh, and make sure that the investment structure is really well tailored to, to the sport. I think understanding the sport, understanding how the sport works, the governance structure of the league, you, you can't go into one of these sporting franchises without really understanding how the pieces fit together. Uh, understanding the politics, understanding the relationship between the clubs, the sporting franchise. Um, there are an awful lot of landmines, uh, I think, around, around these investment structures. and. Look, this, this goes for a lot of investments, but careful planning, uh, because this is one of those sectors where, much more so than others, a, a wrong move can really have dramatically bad consequences. That can be hard to that can be hard to pedal back from. If if you get onto a a bad news flow, uh, you know, if there's negative press, negative publicity that gets out there, that can be very hard to pull back. You know, and particularly in this day and age, once a story is out there. It can be awfully, I mean, you'll know this, your industry, you'll know this better than anyone. It can be awfully difficult to backpedal once a story gathers momentum and gets a life of its own. So yeah. don't get yourself in that position where you're having to manage negative PR. Very, very carefully planned. Um, and that should uh, allow for allow for successful execution. Fantastic opportunities out there. I think it's, I think it's a great sector. And I think there's a, there's a lot more to come in the next few years. Definitely, me too, me too. I look forward to, to seeing what's the next big win for private equity um, in the sports world. Um, perfect, Michael, you've been really great to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today um, and thanks everyone for listening. Mm-hmm.